there is a, a lifting requirement for the role of worship producer here. But would you uh, pray with me, please, as we uh, prepare together to hear uh, from God this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, coming to us and speaking to us in and through your word. We thank you that your word is living and powerful and that it uh, gives life and hope. And so for the places where we are uh, hungry and thirsty and dry, for the places where we are broken and disintegrated, uh, for the places where we have darkness and despair, uh, bring your light through your word. And Lord, thank you that uh, you come alongside of us with good gifts and that we are gathered here today with many occasions to celebrate and to rejoice and to give you thanks. And so Lord, uh, amplify our praise, amplify our thanks, um, deepen our joy through your word. Let us experience the fullness of life that you have intended for us because we uh, give ourselves to you. And we love you, and we adore you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we are in the season of Lent, and uh, as you know, we have started a little series for the season of Lent called We Believe. And uh, we are talking uh, in this series about some of the basic Christian beliefs that we share. What are the core doctrines of the Christian faith, and what is it that we believe? Uh, Lent is a good time for us to do a series like this, uh, because Lent is really a time uh, when we're invited to be in a season of preparing to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus come Easter Sunday. And in this season of preparing, one of the things that we get to do is sort of strip away uh, all of the unnecessary clutter. Uh, we sort of get to uh, uh, clean out the basements and clean out the attics and pair things back to the things that matter most. And so that's the question that we're asking ourselves in this little series. What are some of the core, basic Christian beliefs that matter most? What are the basic building blocks of our faith together? What is it that we believe? Uh, the other reason that a series like this is appropriate for the season of Lent is that when it comes time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we want to recognize that the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just spring out of nowhere, as it were, but rather that the resurrection of Jesus is a part of a long, ongoing story that's been told over the millennia. That the resurrection of Jesus fits in its place, in its context, within this story, and we get to have access to the fullest, deepest, grandest, most beautiful meaning of the resurrection. We get to experience the power of the resurrection best when we understand the whole story of which it is a part. And the story is told by our doctrine. Uh, the story is told in the teaching. Uh, the story is told in what we believe. And so this morning, uh, we are going to focus on this building block right in the middle, uh, the Trinity. And if you've been paying attention this morning, you've been hearing uh, specific Trinitarian language woven all through our time together already today. 
And as we approach this uh, teaching on the Trinity, uh, there isn't one text that we can go to. There isn't one place in the Bible where you will find a, a paragraph or a sentence that says, this is the Trinity and this is what we believe about the Trinity. But the idea of the Trinity uh, permeates all throughout Scripture, all through both the Old and the New Testaments. Author Michael Reeves uh, is the author of a book called Delighting in the Trinity. And uh, in that book, he expresses one of our basic problems with the Trinity. And he says that uh, the problem that we have with the Trinity is that it is not seen as a solution and a delight, but rather as an oddity and a problem. And so uh, he goes on, he says, in fact, some uh, of the ways people talk about the Trinity only seem to reinforce that idea. Uh, think, for example, of all of those desperate-sounding illustrations. And uh, maybe you've heard me use some of them. Maybe you've, you used uh, some of them yourselves. The Trinity, uh, some helpful soul explains, is a bit like an egg. Has anybody ever used the egg example to try to explain the Trinity? Uh, uh, he says, that, you know, there's the shell, there's the yolk, there's the white, and yet it's all one egg. No, says another, uh, the Trinity is more like a shamrock leaf. Uh, and there's one leaf, but it's got three bits uh, sort of sticking out of it, just like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And um, he goes on to say, one wonders why the world laughs. For whether the uh, Trinity is compared to shrubbery, a streaky bacon, the three states of H2O, or a three-headed giant, uh, it begins to sound bizarre like some pointless and unsightly growth on our understanding of God, one that could surely be lopped off with no consequence other than a universal sigh of relief. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to see if we can recover a little bit the wonder, the beauty, the significance, the importance of this doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it is not an easy doctrine. It's not an easy uh, thing to understand, but it's important, and as we're going to see, it's central to who we are in Christ. Before we get to the wonder and the beauty and the delight that the Trinity offers us, though, uh, we need to see what it is we're talking about. Uh, what is it that we are saying when we say we believe in the Trinity? So the starting place is the monotheism of Israel. Monotheism, one God, the one God religion, of ancient Israel. Now, it's as we sit here today, it's hard for us who are monotheistic, it's hard for us to imagine how odd, how countercultural, uh, how uh, revolutionary it was for an ancient Hebrew to claim that there was only one God. Uh, it, it was a, uh, a completely unique and remarkable statement to make. Uh, in their time. Instead, what you would find, all of Israel's neighbors, uh, all of their trading partners, all of their, the linguistic families that they participated in, all of the stories that they would tell, uh, all were stories about many gods, right? Every city uh, had its own god. Every country had its own god or gods. Uh, if you flipped over to the Greek side of the world, uh, you would find that the Greeks had gods for almost every kind of occasion and event. Uh, everybody assumed that, of course, there are many, many gods, countless gods, in fact. And then Israel comes along, 
And what do they say? They say, no, there is only one God. Completely revolutionary. Completely stunning. Look at the way that it's put in Exodus chapter 20. I've listed a number of texts in the bulletin today. Uh, you can use those to keep track of some of the places that we visit. We'll visit some others as well, and you can jot those down. Exodus 20. Then God instructed the people as follows. I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Do not worship any other gods besides me. Do not make idols of any kind, whether in the shape of birds or animals or fish. You must never worship or bow down to them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God and will not share your affection with any other God. I do not leave unpunished the sins of those who hate me, but I punish the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generations, but I lavish my love on those who love me and obey my commands even for a thousand generations. So right at the very beginning, at the very sort of uh, foundation of the Hebrew life together, at the very core of the identity of Israel, is this idea that there is only one God to worship. That's right at the beginning. And then it only builds from there. Uh, in Isaiah 43 and 44 and 45, there is a lengthy passage where the prophet Isaiah uh, is describing what it means to believe in only one God. And in there we find God saying, I am the only God. There is no other besides me. And moreover, not only did the Hebrews teach that there was only one God, their God, but they also believed that this one God was responsible for creating the entire universe, that everybody, not just the Hebrews, were created by this one God. And so the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis 1, starts with the words, in the beginning, God. One God. Only one God. In the New Testament, Jesus and Paul and Peter and other writers come along and they reinforce just as strongly the idea that there is only one God. For example, uh, in Mark's Gospel, if you'll turn over to Mark 12, uh, you'll see that in Mark 12, uh, verse 29, uh, Jesus is going to be referring to the same law that we just read a moment ago. And Jesus himself says, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, and all of your strength. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher uh, of the religious law replied, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the, uh, the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. Jesus affirms this reality. He says, there is, Jesus says, there's only one God, only one. So the beginning of putting together this doctrine of the Trinity is that there's only one God. There's not two gods. There's not three gods. There's not many, many, many gods. There's only one God. And then things start to get a little bit more complex. Because the next thing that we find in the scriptures is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all equally God. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God. Uh, there are places in, this, in the uh, Gospels uh, where we find the disciples, who are Jewish to their core, falling down and worshiping Jesus. And Jesus, who is also Jewish to his core, who knows the, uh, uh, the text of uh, uh, the, the law, he knows uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, worship only him. He's just said it in Mark 12. He knows what the rules are. He knows that there's only one God to worship. And yet when the disciples fall down to worship him, he receives their worship and says that it's appropriate for them to do so. That's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. Jesus receives their worship. And then take a look for just a moment at John chapter 8. Uh, in John chapter 8, uh, we get this statement. Uh, the very end of the chapter, Jesus answered, The truth is, I existed before Abraham was even born. And at that point, they picked up stones to kill him, but Jesus hid himself from them and left the temple. Now, what's happening here? Jesus here is claiming what? What is he claiming by saying, before Abraham was, uh, I am? What, what is he saying there? What he's saying is that he is equal to God. What he's saying is that he is God. He uses the term there, I am, which is the name that God gives to Moses in the wilderness. He says that I am. And furthermore, the people respond to Jesus' invocation of that name uh, as though he has just committed blasphemy, and they pick up uh, rocks to stone him. Why do they want to stone him? They want to stone him because they recognize full well precisely the claim that Jesus is making. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God, and everybody there knew that he was claiming to be God, and they wanted to kill him because of it. Jesus claimed to be God. We could also look at uh, the first chapter of John. In the first chapter of John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a little bit later on, we find that this Word becomes flesh, and lives among us in the person of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This eternal, pre-incarnate, pre-existing word is affirmed to be God along with the Father. And then if you were to flip forward just a little bit further into the book of Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 5, there's this interesting little story uh, about Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, they make a mistake, uh, they uh, sell their property, they say that they're going to give all of the proceeds uh, to the church, uh, but they lie about that, they hold back uh, their, um, some, of their, um, some of their profit, and they keep it. And uh, Peter comes to him in verse 3 of Acts 5 and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. And then at the end of that paragraph, he says, how can you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Do you see the equivalence that Peter establishes and that Luke records? You weren't lying to us, but to the Holy Spirit. You were lying to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as to lie to God. There's an equivalence that gets established. Uh, beyond those sorts of examples where we see the language leaning towards an equivalence between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
There are examples of places in the scripture where we're told to baptize into the name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul blesses in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a blessing that would be familiar to you as you hear it each week in our benediction. Uh, as we go on through the uh, text, we see uh, all of the members of the, the Trinity are present at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is in the, in the river, and the Holy Spirit is there, and the voice of the Father is speaking. In the Great Commission, we see all three in Paul's description of the spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians, he cites all three members of the Trinity. Uh, in 1 Peter, Peter describes the work of salvation as the work of the entire Trinity. The Trinity is literally over the entire Bible. It's in all of the texts, Old Testament and New. And it goes all the way back, even to the very first chapter. We dipped into it just a moment ago, uh, back to Genesis chapter 1. And you read there that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty, a formless mass, cloaked in darkness. And then this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface, and then God said, uh, there was a word of God. So there is God who exists in the beginning. There is the spirit of God and there is the word of God. The word of God that we just got done reading in John 1 is eventually the word that becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. The word, the spirit, and the father are all present at the moment of creation. And then if that's not compelling enough, a little bit later in that first chapter, God says to himself in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. God is using the plural to describe himself. Who is it that's included in this plurality? Genesis doesn't develop it. Uh, it doesn't have a vision uh, for what that could be just yet. But it's a, it's a fascinating statement for such a monotheistic religion. Let us make people in our image. And we'll come back to that idea in just a few moments. So we've been putting together what we believe about the Trinity. The first thing that we believe is that there's only one God. The second thing that we believe is that the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God. And so some of you are saying, okay, I think I can piece this together. I think I understand this, but there's one more wrinkle. And let me see if I can show it to you. Uh, some of us are thinking, um, so God is like a big pizza, right? And if you cut that pizza into thirds, uh, you're describing the Trinity. So a third of the pizza is the Father's, and another third is the Son, and the last third is the Spirit. And all together is one pizza, but there are three parts. Right? Is that how this works? Is that the doctrine of the Trinity? No, it's not the doctrine of the Trinity. Because Colossians 2.9 says this, and this is a tantalizing idea. Uh, in Colossians 2.9, Paul says that in Jesus, all of the fullness of deity was present. All of God is present in Jesus. Not a third of God, not a part of God, not a segment of God, but all of God is present in bodily form. It's all of the fullness of Godhead. So it's not enough just to say uh, that there are three gods. 
or that there are three parts of God. What we say is that there is one God who is in three persons in this one being. Uh, it's not enough to say that each one is a third of the being because each person of God actually fully contains the other two as well. Um, sometimes people try to manage that uh, unmanageable, unmanageable thought by saying something like, okay, so, um, so it's sort of like tag team wrestling, right? And uh, sometimes uh, God the Father, you know, God puts on the Father hat and he comes into the ring and he shows up and we experience the Father. And then he's done and he tags the Son and puts on the Son hat and he comes in and now he's functioning as the Son. And then sometimes he functions as the Spirit. And he just, he just functions in these different modes. And, and uh, is that how this works? He, he just appears in these different modes of, of work. And what we want to say is that that's also not accurate. It isn't true that, that when uh, Jesus, uh, where all of the presence of God is dwelling here on earth, is present on earth, that there's no God in heaven. Because Jesus, curiously enough, all through his ministry, prays to God the Father in heaven. Right? Jesus is praying to God. Jesus talks about the Father. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the other persons of the Godhead. Jesus is praying to them. You say, well, maybe he was praying to himself somehow or another. But one of Jesus' prayers at the very end of his life, remember what he says in the garden just before his crucifixion? Jesus says this. He says, let this cup pass from me if it's possible. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is describing uh, two wills, not uh, his own will and the will of his Father. He's describing uh, a, another person. He's not talking to himself. And so therefore what we have is this. God is one. There's one God. We believe in one God. And we believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all fully and equally God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. If you believe all of that, you have Trinitarianism. You believe in the Trinity. And this is what we believe. Uh, this is, and by we, who is the we? The we is, and this, and this is fascinating. Uh, if you look at the Protestant Church, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, if you look at all of the stripes and versions of Christianity, uh, this, uh, and, and, and we're just riddled with differences and and uh, and dis disagreements and and uh, and uh, uh, different perspectives and different beliefs. It's full uh, between sort of all of the branches and family members of the Christian faith. But on this one, we're all together. Uh, this is part of what it means to be a Christian. This is part of what it means to belong to the family of faith, to believe that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. There is one God and three persons, and all of the Christian church has always said this uh, throughout the centuries. And without this, your understanding of everything else, including the crucifixion and the resurrection, goes wrong. So to see... Uh, the beauty of that doctrine, once you sort of grasp a hold of it, the beauty of the doctrine is found in the way that the members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, live together.
uh, the way that they uh, be together. To see that, I want to uh, show you one more text, and it's in John 17. If you look at the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17. Let me just read a couple of verses for you out of the beginning of this chapter. What's it like to be in the Trinity? This is Jesus praying. Um, he says, Father, the time has come. This is just before uh, he goes to his death. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. Stop and hear that. This is Jesus praying. Father, glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone in all of the earth, and he gives eternal life to each one that you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one that you sent to earth. Then Jesus says, I brought glory to you here on earth by doing everything you told me to do. And now, Father, bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. What was the Trinity doing before the world began? What were they doing for all of eternity? They were sharing glory. They were glorifying each other. So what does it mean to glorify? What does it mean? And Jesus describes it perfectly here. First of all, to glorify means to praise or to appreciate or to adore somebody. Uh, secondly, it means to serve and to please that person. He says, I brought you glory, Father, uh, by doing everything that you wanted me to do. I was serving you. I was pleasing to you. And then thirdly, uh, it's done out of love. The motive to glorify somebody is love. Jesus says it a number of times, but in verse 24, he says it specifically. Uh, he says, the glory that you have given to me because of your love, because you loved me. So to glorify somebody is to praise them, to appreciate them, to adore them, to serve them, to please them, and it's born out of love. So if you truly love somebody, right, if you truly love somebody, one of the ways that you express that love is that you glorify them. You lift them up, you praise them, you, you adore them, you serve them, you please them. And what we're told here is that the Father and the Son have been doing that with each other for all eternity. But if you actually go uh, back one more chapter uh, to the 16th chapter, we find out that the Holy Spirit is in on this as well. And the Holy Spirit is busy sharing in this glory. So therefore, this is what we believe about the Trinity. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity have been in this community and they're pouring glory and love and joy uh, into one another's hearts in infinite amounts. Just think for a minute what it would be like to be a part of that community. They're, they're pouring joy and glory and love into each other in, in, to a degree that we can't even possibly comprehend. That's what God has been doing since before time began. So what does that mean? It means that the nature of God, the fundamental nature of who God is, is love. Before he created, before anything else, 
God was already existing in love. So what does that mean? Well, do you remember back in Genesis 1 where we read that we are created in the image of this God? That we are created somehow to reflect the likeness, the image, the person of this God? What would this mean if you and I are created in the image of, a God, of God and this God was love before and above all else? What that would mean then is that love is the ultimate reality for us. It would mean that uh, the, the, the center cosmic reality is love. If God is a triune God and if, if love and community is at the very center of who God is from all eternity, then your friendships and your family and your relationships and your faith community are more important than anything else in your life. If God is love and, and, and love is the very center of who God is for all eternity and all time and you're created in the image of that God, then love is the most important thing in your life. Uh, performance accumulation, possessions, everything else pales. The relationships that you have, the relationships that you nurture, the relationships that you enjoy are the most important thing in your life. And you know that's true. We experience that's true. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't just a doctrine that, that we can sort of puzzle out intellectually in our head, but the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that we experience we, we sort of viscerally, in our gut, know that it's true. Because when we are in the, a, a relationship we, where we are being deeply and well-loved, and we're sharing love, our, 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 our hearts are filled with joy. We feel content. We feel whole. We, we, we know that th th this experience of, I'm made for this. This is what I'm made for. And on the other hand, when relationships are broken and severed, when, when, when they let us down, when love isn't expressed, when, 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 when there's pain and loss, then no matter what else is happening in our life, it feels like there's something empty. It feels like there's a hole. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. You're experiencing the Trinity. You're experiencing either the presence or the absence of the image that you were created in. And then let me go one more step. And this, this is awesome. This is absolutely amazing. Because this is what Jesus says. In John 17, he says this, that he wants to share his glory with us. And he wants us to share in the glory that the Trinity has been experiencing for all eternity. His prayer is that we will begin to experience, look at verse 22, I have given them glory that you gave me so that we may be one, so that they may be one as we are, I and them, you and me, all being perfected in one, 
Father, I want those uh, whom you've given me to be with me so that they can see my glory. You gave me the glory because you loved me even before the world began. The prayer of Jesus, the longing of Jesus, the heartbeat of Jesus is that we will share in this Trinity community, that we'll experience the love of this eternal community. You're made for that relationship. You're made to enjoy that reality. You're, you're, you're made to live in this community where each member, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, uh, don't seek glory for themselves, but only seek glory for the other. And you can have this love, you can have this experience, you can have this happiness, you can live in this joy. And the only way that that will happen, Jesus says, is if God is the very center of your life. The only way that will happen is if you seek to glorify God above all else in me. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. If you remember where we started today, back in the law, and God says, worship me, worship only me, and don't worship any other gods. Do you notice the, the, the option that he's giving? The choice that he's giving is that either you will worship me or you'll worship another god. Uh, he doesn't give you the option to, to not worship. He doesn't make it a possibility that you could worship nothing. Because uh, we're created in the image of a God who has existed for all eternity, glorifying the other members of the Godhead. We're hardwired to glorify something. We will glorify somebody. And God says, if you want to live uh, in relationships the way that we enjoy this eternal, profound joy in the Trinity, if you want to experience that in your life, then the way to do that is to worship only me. It's to glorify only me, to glorify me above all else. Not to seek your own glory, not to worry about who's glorifying you, but to, see, to seek the glory of God, the very center of who you are. So, for example, if you feel uh, maybe this past week uh, something's happened and you have failed somebody, maybe you've been criticized harshly, maybe you've gotten a bad review, maybe there was an argument and somebody said you're a disappointment and you've let me down, and that experience has just eaten you up inside. And the reason that that's eating you up inside, the reason that, that we don't get past those kinds of injuries, is because we're glorifying somebody else's opinion of ourselves over God. God says, if you want to live in loving relationships where you're not seeking your own glory, but you're seeking only the glory of God, then you'll find joy. Then you'll find satisfaction. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are infinitely happy because they glorify the others and they don't seek glory for themselves. As long as you're trying to get your own glory through your looks, through your success, through your intelligence, through your status, through having a popular opinion. If there's anything that's more important to you than the glory of God, then you'll never be happy. 
you'll never enjoy this community of the Trinity. Why? Because that's what you were made for. The Trinity uh, isn't just a confusing doctrine for us to puzzle about. It's a description of uh, the most beautiful, perfect relationship that we could ever imagine. And it's an invitation to enter in to that relationship. Uh, Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we do thank you for um, the love that you share with us. Thank you for the joy that you share with us, for the possibility that we can participate with you in this eternal, loving community. Lord, help us to um, move beyond uh, the intellectual puzzle and help us, Lord, to experience Uh, what it means to be um, not only to worship you as Trinity, but to be invited in to share life with you. Lord, we want to um, glorify you above all else in our life. Help us to recognize when we've gotten off track with that. Help us to pay attention to the places that our life hurts, where it feels um, thin or empty and to see those places as invitations to identify something that we have glorified above you. Lord, forgive us for seeking our own glory for all of the ways that we invest in ourselves. Lord, we want to love you, we want to serve you, we want to adore you above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.